what God has called us to and where he speaks to us most clearly. Um, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 29 uh, today, um, and uh, we're going to be continuing a, a story about David that is uh, more than we would like it to be, a little bit confusing. Um, because what we often want from Bible stories is for them to, to wrap up into neat little packages. Uh what we often want from Bible stories is that uh, what we often want from Bible stories is that is that they give us r clear answers, and we would like to hear a story that we could wrap up in a package, and there and there's a clear end and a clear moral at the end of the story. So we hear the story, and then at the end of the story, we hear like a, a narrator's voice, like on a TV or or a movie. We just hear this this deep, powerful voice just come over it and say, "And the moral of the story is that David ought to trust the Lord at all." times you know like that that's what we want most of the time and unfortunately when we actually spend time in the text there's lots of times where it's not that clear and what we're told is a story and what we're left with is 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 trying to figure out what is the right and the wrong in the midst of this confusing time and I think one of the reasons why the Bible does that is because we also live lives that are fraught with confusion. And as much as we face things that we would like to be black and white, that we would like to, to have very easy choices and, and know who is wearing a white hat and who is wearing a black hat like in the old westerns, which is how they distinguish between the good guys and the bad guys, and we would like life to be that simple, it's not. And, and it's confusing, and we live in a confusing world, and we're frustrated with how we ought to, uh, to operate in this world. And that's why we're looking at this story, which is following David in Gath. Da and Gath is an interesting place for David because Gath is a place that David returns to at the hinge points of his life in, in times of confusion, especially in this second act of David's life. As he's on the run, Gath is a place that he goes back to when, when, he's, when he's lost. Not when he's lost his way, but when he doesn't really know what to do. And that's where our story finds us today. That David is in Gath, in a confusing place, in a confusing situation, uh, with no clear right answers. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul, and there is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. And then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So this is where David's mindset is at right now. He knows that Saul is after him. He knows that, that, that this continual chasing of him by Saul is only causing him pain. It's only causing pain for the people around him. It's only causing pain for the people of Israel as Saul, rather than being focused on being king of Israel and like doing kingly things like ruling and like maybe building a road or like he doesn't do those things. He just takes his army out and he goes and he, he looks for David all the time. Rather than that, David says, I'm going I'm to leave, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to handle this situation in a different way. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, son of Maosh, king of Gath. Now, he's already done this once. When he first escaped from Saul, he ran to Gath, and, and that, there he pretended to be insane before Achish. And, uh, and Achish said, like, don't I already have enough madmen in my kingdom? Get this guy out of here. And David ran off, but now he finds himself back, and this time he's in a very different situation. And what's interesting about Gath is everybody knows David, everybody knows his story, and they don't hear it the same way we did, because in their story, Goliath is the hero, and David is the, is, is the, the, the trickster villain who, who in, a fight, in what was supposed to be a fair fight, 
between infantrymen decided to pull out a sling and cheat Goliath and murder him. That's the story that they've heard. So it's so fascinating to me that David shows up here with 600 men. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man in his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. So this is David. He's got his, his 600 men. He's got their entire households. Possibly between 12 and 1,400 people are now rolling in, in, in David's moving village. And now he's living with Gath. And, and just so we can understand this geographically, um, this, is, uh, this is Gath over here. You can kind of see it right in the, in the center of Philistia there. It makes sense as a capital city. It's protected. It's got its borders around it at all times. And David's going to move down here to Ziklag and be operating down here. So just so we can get our, our map straight. So David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So we see here that David is in a curious place where he spends a year and four months. Twelve and four is 16 months. Yes, 12 and four is 16 months. Sorry, math not wrong suit. So, but he spends 16 months living in this in-between time. You know, and, and the reason why I think it's important for us to, to recognize this is that we also live in an in-between time most of the time. We live in a place where we've experienced the joy of the Lord, we've experienced the life of the Lord, we maybe even have experienced the rule of the Lord, but we don't have that full realized vision of it yet. Jesus has not returned. We still live in a place where evil is done. We still live in a place where, where, where there is death and mourning and crying and pain. So, and, and that's sometimes intolerable. And it's often frustrating. But what I want, but I think what we're called to at this point, like David, is to recognize that even though we're living in a, in a confusing in-between time, that does not mean that the Lord is with us, that the Lord isn't with us. And that's what David experiences here. So he's in, so he's in Ziklag, and he, so he's in Ziklag down here, and he lives in this uh, kind of country town, takes his people there, and, uh, and sort of lives just in the outskirts of, the, of Israel in, in a more country place. He's neither here nor there. He's in between. And in the midst of this, David is cozying up to the Philistines, which seems so contrary to what he's been called to. Now David and his men made up and ra made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from old, as far as sure, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish said, where have you made raid today? David would say against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the uh, Jeramalites, or against the Negev of the Canaanites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they tell about us and say, so David is done. So this is what David's doing right now. So David is based out of Ziklag, which is right here, okay? And then he's making raids against the Amalekites and, and Shur and all of the people all the way down to Egypt, which is over here, okay? And then when he does this, he, he murders everyone and then takes their stuff and he brings it back to, 
to Gath, the king of the Philistines. And, and, and he does that. And when he asks him that, he says that, oh, I've been raiding the Negev, which just means wilderness. I've been raiding the wilderness down here in the land of Israel. That's what he's telling Achish. He's, he's playing both sides of this battle. So he's, he's, he's living one way. He's destroying the Philistine strongholds and all of these kinds of enemies of Israel down here. And then returning the, the plunder to, to the Philistines, but telling the king of the Philistines that this is what he's doing here, that, 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 he's, that he's raiding the Israelites. And, and so Achish has a response to this, and, and, uh, and, and, so, and, and, and the Bible says that such was his custom all the time he, while he lived in the country of the Philistines, and Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an, un, an utter stench to his people Israel, and therefore he shall always be my servant. It's interesting that the king of Achish thinks that he's got David where he wants him. He's like, he, he can't, he's with me now. He can't go back to the life that he had before. There's, Saul wants to kill him, and even if, he, if Saul somehow died and he was to try to, to establish his place as king of Israel, who's going to accept him? He's been, he's been raiding and murdering and stealing from them for months. I've got David where I want him. And, and he is so confident of his, of his control of David that in, uh, in 1 Samuel 29, something very interesting happens. That the Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek and at Israel at Aphek, uh, and Israel camped by the spring at Jezreel, and the Philistine rulers marched their units of hundreds and thousands, and David and his men were marching in the rear with Achish. And so they're about to make war against Israel. And Achish is so confident in David's status as being on his side that he brings David with him to a battle against Israel. He says, okay, we're going to go fight Israel. I've got this army of 600 men. They're, they're, they're hardened, trained warriors. Of course I'm going to bring them to the battle against Israel. But the commanders of the Philistines did not have the confidence that Achish had. They were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place where you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us into the battle, lest the, in the battle he become an adversary to us. How could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is this not David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck, struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So we, even though Achish has this trust of David, we see that, that the other Philistine rulers don't have that same trust. And they're like, ah, uh, no, we don't want to go out and fight with David. Because the way that fights happened back then is, is if you've seen any of the medieval movies, this is how they would do it. There would be large groups of men that would wander down from one side of a hill into the middle. And then another large group of men would wander from the other side of the hill down and they would meet in the middle. And they would have a melee. They would just fight hand to hand until enough of them had died that, that, that one team would retreat. That, that's essentially, it was bloody, it was ruthless, it was, it was kind of pointless and senseless, which is why they often had battles by champion. Why, rather than risking our hundreds of people, why don't we just send one guy out and then that's the way that this thing works. But what the Philistine kings are concerned of about is that they're going to march down into the center of the valley with David and his 600 men, and as soon as they get there and the fight starts, they're going to turn on the Philistines as well. And, and now they'll have to fight two enemies rather than, the, rather than the one that they were thinking of, and that, that's how David is going to ingratiate himself to Saul. But at the end of the fight, they'll be like, lots of Philistines are dead. David and Saul high five. We all go, everybody goes to their own place. And they're, and they're saying that this is the, 
the reputation of David. So Achish comes to David and he's concerned. And Achish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable, and I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the, from the, in the army from the day you came to me until now. I have found no fault in you, but the rulers don't approve of you. Therefore, turn back in peace and do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. And, and David says to Achish, and he sounds upset. He genuinely sounds upset here. But what have I done? What have, I, what have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us into battle and then rise early in the morning with the servants of your lord who came to you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the lands of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So, David's out of this fight. And we don't hear in the story what David would have done. It's possible that David's plan all along was to do what the Philistines had accused him of. That he would get down there, and as soon as the Israelites and the Philistines began to fight, that David would have chosen to fight alongside his brothers and turned his back on the Philistines and, and, and allowed his treachery to be... To, to, to find its full completeness. But it's also possible that David at this point had a genuine loyalty to Achish, and he would have fought alongside him. We don't know, because at some point, everything turned to push David away from the point where he had to make a decision about what he was going to do, and, 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 and removes him from that situation altogether to, the, to an, uh, in... By the time we get to, 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 to 1 Samuel 30, the very next scene, we see that David, rather than being at Jezreel, if we want to go back to the map, rather than fighting up here at Jezreel, David has retreated all the way back down here, and he's now fighting the Amalekites again. He's way out of the problem. He's way out of the issue. So, and what's frustrating about this is that the Bible doesn't, tell us how to interpret it. It doesn't tell us if David was right. It doesn't tell us that David was wrong. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us anything. It just, it just tells us the story of what happened. And in and, and, and my research, I found two conventional ways of, of dealing with this. There's either the moralizing interpretation or the secularizing interpretation. Those are the two most common. And the moralizing uh, interpretation says that David has lost his way, that David never should have gone and lived in Gath, that David never should have lived amongst the Philistines, that he should have stayed in Israel, and that and this lying and, and raiding and lying to Achish was a demonstration of David's lack of faith in the Lord, and he, should have, and he should have placed himself in a different position to be used by God. And that's one way to interpret the story. There's another way to interpret the story, which is the secularizing principle, which, is, which applauds the shrewdness of David. That, that look, at, uh, look at how smart David was. He managed to, to fool the Philistines. He managed to fool the Israelites. He did the best he could. And, and using the circumstances, he enriched himself and he weakened his enemies. That, that he gathered a whole lot of plunder. He placed his family in a position of superiority. He was in a better position than he was in the wilderness. Yay, way to go, David. But while these two are the most common interpretations, they're not, neither of them are really complete. Because they focus on the actions of David rather than the actions of the Lord. And if we follow this story through, as we have done, if you follow the story of David, it's less about what David does 
than David's relationship with the Lord. And if we're under, to understand David's life, we're to understand primarily and deeply that God is with David. That God is with David at all times. He's with David in good and bad times. He's with David when David is successful and when David has failure. He's with David when David is inside the will of God and he's with David when he is outside the will of God. And, and, and we know deeply that in the story of David, that David knows that God's presence is with him when, when he makes him to lie down in green pastures. He restores his soul. He prepares a table before David in the presence of his enemies. And yea, though David walks through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is with him. His rod and his staff comfort him. That is the, that is the core and the foundation of this story. And Eugene Peterson phrases it this way as we as we look at it, and, and discards both of these interpretations. Because this, he says the storyteller doesn't say that this is the right thing to do. He simply says that this is what David does. And that in precisely these conditions, God works out his purposes. God protects David from violating his covenant. He guards David's faithfulness to his anointing. He works out his salvation. The primary concern of the spiritual life isn't what we do for God, but what God does for us. It would have been very easy for David to look at his circumstances and say, and, and to get lost. And, and I'm sure David was lost in the midst of his circumstances. There didn't appear to be any right answers for him. But in the midst of this, he needed to trust and understand that in the midst of this, God can work all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Eugene Peterson continues, and, and, and I want to, to focus on, to, to, to allow this to, to affect our interpretation of the text. The David and Akish episode isn't biblical license for caving into the, I'm going to go back, sorry. David is more or less doing what he has to do, surviving as best he can under condi conditions that are decidedly uncongenial to what we're apt to call the, spirit, the spiritual life. He doesn't stand up in indignation against Akish and confront the Philistine culture of brutality and idolatry. He doesn't get on his moral high horse and announce to Akish that the only way he can in good conscience serve him is as a non-combatant and offer his company's good Samaritan experience and expertise and service. None of that. He lives not only in the money economy of, uh, uh, of Philistine Gath, but also in its moral economy. And the David Akish episode isn't biblical license for caving into the culture. On the contrary, we're, we're repeatedly admonished to come out from among them and be ye separate. We're taught in many and various ways to resist the undertow of the world's culture. It is, though, a story of what happens to us when we find ourselves overwhelmed by our culture with seemingly no way out. A story of God's hidden province, providence, God's behind-the-scenes efforts doing for us what we aren't doing for ourselves. And Eugene Peterson continues, and I, I know scores of men and women who are living under the patronage of a quiche of Gath, and many of them feel terrible about it. Many of them feel guilty, but quite honestly don't know what else they can do. They have jobs with companies that do business in defiant contempt of the kingdom of God. They're married to spouses who hate the name of Jesus. They seem to be inextricably tangled in an economic system that exploits the poor and ignores the oppressed. And they're doing their best to honor parents who dishonor God in thought, 
word and deed. And there's hardly a Christian I know who hasn't put in time, sometimes far more than David's 16 months under Achish of Gath. And I want to say this. That God is perfectly capable of working out his purposes when we can't lift a finger to help. Better yet, God is faithfully working out our salvation when every time we lift a finger to help, uh, every time we lift a finger to help seems to contribute to the wrong side, the Philistine side. And I say this because we live just as David lived in a complex world where he looked at his situation and said, if I stay in Israel, Saul is going to chase me down. Saul is going to either kill me and all of these 1,200 people that are following me. He is going to, he is going to ignore his responsibilities as, as king of Israel and leave people without protection as he chased me down, chases me down. The only thing that I can think of to do is to go and, and live in the culture of Gath and participate in that as much as I can. There's no right answer in this situation. And we find ourselves in situations where it feels like there's no right answer either. Where we have issues in our family where we help someone in the midst of their distress and it all goes wrong and it just seems to empower them to make the same dumb decision that they made last time. Or we don't help and they fall flat on their faces. We knew that their actions would lead them to do and now we have participated in their pain and their suffering and their downfall. Or we read the news and we, or, 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 or we, we try to not participate in, a, in an economy that, that, that ignores the poor and, and leads to their oppression. But, but then we find out that all of the clothes on our back and all of the food that are available for us to eat are part of this as well. And we find ourselves in a position where like, I own a house and I have a mortgage and there's no way that my mortgage isn't tied into a whole bunch of things that I find absolutely reprehensible in this world. And how do I extricate myself from that or we read the news and we say there are thing, horrible things happening in the world and, and look at all the people who are wrong and how do I possibly intervene in a world that, that, that is frustrating and complex and weird and I don't even know how to, how, what, what, what truth I'm supposed to run into and what truth I'm supposed to operate in and we get scared and we get stuck and we get angry. It's a very natural place for us to be. There's no right answer in this world. And anything I do seems to contribute to the evil, so now I'm just stuck. And we know that paralysis is not what God has called us to. But in the midst of this, we need to remind ourselves, as David often would have been reminded our, as well, that the Lord is our shepherd and we shall not want. He makes us to lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside the still waters. He restores our soul. And I should have this memorized, but I don't have it nearly as memorized as I wanted to. I thought I had it memorized. Sorry. I'm totally... You do? Do you want to... Okay, come up, come up here. Recite Psalm 23, then. The Lord is my shepherd. There is nothing I lack. Okay, he lets me... The Lord is my shepherd, there is nothing I lack. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Yeah. Dang it. <laughs> Even though. Even though. <laughs> Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. My, thy rod, thy staff, they comfort me. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Surely goodness and love will and mercy will pursue, pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thanks so much. <laughs> that was pretty impressive, given that you uh, that that was completely uncalled. Like I prepared, and I completely forgot. And and also, like, I grew up memorizing the King James Version, so, like, all of the memorized verses that I have in my head are, like, messed up because, like, like surely goodness and, you know, I, I, these and thous. But that's what we've been called to remember. That sometimes God calls us and leads us uh, beside in green pastures and beside quiet waters. But when we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death, he is there as well. He hasn't abandoned us and said, oh, you've gone off to the valley of the shadow of death. It's scary there. I'm going to hold back and you call me when you get out. When we're in the valley of the shadow of death, he is alongside us. When it appears that there is no direction that we can take that doesn't put us or the people around us in deeper danger, he is with us even then. He is working on our side. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He is preparing a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And even though that this is difficult to understand and complex for us to grasp and it feels like we're stuck and, we're, and, and we're, there's no way out of it, this is what he's called us to do. So we, so we reject both the moralizing principle and interpretation of this story, which places all of the responsibility on our actions. We need to live properly. And we reject the secularizing angle as well, which again places it on our side and it says that the world de depends on our shrewdness and our ability to navigate complex situations. And instead, we, place the, uh, we, 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 we turn to a spiritual principle which says that this story is not about what we do. This story is about what the Lord is doing. And in the midst of a world that is scary and lost and appears to be acting completely contrary to the words of the work of the Lord, we do the best we can. There's times when there are no right answers. There's times when the world is so far wrong that, 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 that we can't possibly think of a right thing to do. And in the midst of that, we trust that the Lord is with us now and we act as best we can. And when it turns out that we've done the wrong thing, we repent and we trust and we act again and we repent and we trust and we act again and we repent and we trust and we act again because that is the thing that God has called us to. And that is the, because it's not about what we can discern in the world around us, but what he is doing in the world. Eugene Peterson closes his chapter on this uh, part of the story by moving to a discussion of the church. He says that often our churches are Ziklag or Gath or places where we find confusion. He says, the Christian life is never just my story, it's a community of stories, and I learn my story in the company of others, and each story affects and is affected by each of the others, and most of these others are distressed, in debt, and, in, and discontent, and this complicates things enormously, but there's no getting around it. 
We're a company. We're looking for a central meaning to our lives to catch a thread of the plot and begin to follow it. Receiving the good news that God is gracious, receiving the sacraments of God, God's actions in our actual lives, and then we bump into another story and are thrown off balance. And distracted, we stumble. Safe, we think, in the company of God's people, we're tripped by a moralist and sent sprawling. We're seduced by a secularist and defrauded. We're in ziklag. And that's the reality of the lives that we live. But every once in a while, a shaft of blazing beauty seems to break out of nowhere and illuminate these companies, these churches. And then I see what my sin-dulled eyes had missed, word of God-shaped, Holy Spirit-created, lives of sacrificial humility, incredible courage, heroic virtue, holy praise, joyful suffering, constant prayer, persevering obedience. And I see, like the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins said, I see Christ, for Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. The beauty of the Lord is not inhibited by the confusion of the world around us. Neither is his power nor his sovereignty. So in the midst of that, we look and we trust and we hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are present even in Gath, that you are present even in Ziklag, that you are present even in the valley of the shadow of death, that you are present when you prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies, that you are present in this world as confusing it is, as it is, that you are present when our economic system seems to leave us no choice but to participate in the oppression of our brothers and sisters. You are with us and present when our legal system seems to offer us no choice but living under people who have no interest in justice and peace and goodness for this world. You, you are present when we feel too afraid and too small and too insignificant and too powerless to do anything to make this world more like the place that you have called it to be. And, and, and we feel small and scared and insignificant and unable to change ourselves, let alone the people around us. But you are present there, God. And as you are present there, help us to trust you there. And help us to not only trust you, but to operate within the sphere of your power. That, you have, that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to you. So when we feel small and insignificant, we do not follow a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love for there is no fear in love, for per perfect love casts out all fear. We believe that that is what you've called us to, so help us to live that out amongst each other. Help us to live that out in our, in our family circles, in our work circles, in our friend circles, in all of the places where you've called us, and help us to live that way together in your world, changing it for your glory. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus.